Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes. And I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. This is the Engaging Missions Show, episode 239. This week, we're talking with Ryan Kuja about psychotherapy, spiritual direction, and action. So I knew that to honor both my own story and the complexity of doing mission, I had to integrate these many realms. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Ryan Ensminger. Welcome back to the show. We believe that every missionary and church planter deserves to be heard and loved, and every believer deserves to participate in what God is doing. And I do want to also mention that there's other great podcasts out there, like From the Forefront with my friend Scott McClelland. If you're looking for help with podcast production, maybe to get something out there, send an email to feedback at engagingmissions.com. This week, we're going to be talking about aid work, poverty, the interconnectedness of our inner lives and action, and the importance of being transparent with struggles as well as with victories. This comes on the heels of a great discussion a few weeks ago that we had with another author where we talked about the mind of a missionary. Now we're getting to talk with a specific missionary about his experience and what's been going on, and this is going to be really good. Before we get into this, I do want to mention that we had some technical difficulties toward the end, so this got cut off as we were starting to wrap up, but we did get all of the all of the links and everything that we want to share. That's going to be available for you with resources in the show notes, so that's all there, and Ryan was able to tell his story. I'm really thankful that we were able to do this, but I did want to just kind of let you know about that before we get into this. Today, I am just incredibly happy to have with me Ryan Kuja. He's a global citizen. He has a background in international missions, in relief and development. He's lived in 15 different cities. He's lived in rural villages on five continents. He's currently in Colombia. He's well-educated, and he's recently written the book From the Inside Out. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, this is this is totally my pleasure. I can't wait to dive into this. I, I will tell you, I've, I'm becoming a little bit more a fanboy as I've read through your book, and I really appreciate <laughs> what you did. We're definitely going to spend some time talking about your story, and it's pretty well entwined in, in the narrative of your book. But before we dive in, I'm just wondering, the, the book, From the Inside Out, why did you write this book? Yeah, I think, you know, in a word, it was story, really my story. So some of the things you you touched on there, having lived in a variety of places around the world, different contexts of relief and development and mission, all of it being faith-based, that that journey took me places and not just outwardly in the world. It it took me to some really difficult, difficult places mm. inside myself. And at a point, everything kind of collapsed. My whole world sort of collapsed mentally, physically, spiritually. I was really completely and utterly 
bankrupt and my health deteriorated, my understanding of my vocation and what it meant to serve the marginalized overseas in difficult contexts began to shift. So it was almost as if the bottom fell out in every which way. And that really kind of forced me to go inside myself and to examine everything, everything that I'd been doing, everything I'd been taught. And so that led me to to a period of questioning my old assumptions, examining just everything about what I had been taught and what I was doing. And that that period eventually led me to go to seminary because I wanted to go deeper theologically. Mm. And I also knew I wanted to pursue, I had been in spiritual direction and I had been in psychotherapy. So I was really kind of starting to taste these waters of of where those three integrate. Well, at least I would say spiritual formation, psychology, and and theology. Hmm. And I heard about this this grad school, the seminary in Seattle called the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. So I ended up there and that gave me the context and the kind of the, the place and the platform and, and the people to go deeper with. Personally, on my interior journey, I was able to go deeper in terms hmm. of mission and cross-cultural ministry, but also from an academic perspective. And so really the book started to take shape there as I kind of wrestled with these questions and from my own personal narrative and began to integrate, you know, missiology and a theology of mission into my own, my own experience. And so sort of looking at that work of integration, this, this project sort of started to be born that eventually became this book. Hmm. That, that's, that's really, well, it's really powerful. And I, as I was thinking about that, one of the things that stood out to me as you were sharing that was the, the, the idea that your life, your ministry, kind of your understanding of pretty much everything basically started to collapse at some point, And then God brought you through a journey coming out of that. But I'm wondering if you look back to that point of collapse, was there an event or a series of events that led to that that collapse and then God was able to use? Mm, yes, I would say there were definitely a series of events, certain ones being more potent than others. Well, for example, like I tell the story in the book, I ended up serving in South Sudan with undiagnosed PTSD from mm. a previous incident that happened on the on the African continent in Zimbabwe three years previously. Mm. So I had this sort of this this beast of PTSD inside of me that I didn't know was was alive in me. I just I knew I felt afraid. I knew I was symptomatic. I knew I was, you know, having these psychological symptoms, but I thought I was just supposed to get over it, stop being afraid, just, you know, pray it away, that that sort of thing. And so one of the large events like I tell about in the book, was a a re-traumatization, kind of a, a recapitulation yeah. of that original trauma in a different setting on the African context. And that was really, that was probably the the biggest moment of of collapse. And it was it, it was that kind of really pushed me to the floor. That's mm when I decided and, and and I knew that, you know, kind of discerning in, in community that it was time to, it was time to go home, even though I wanted to stay. Um, yeah. The leadership basically 
said, you know, it's it's time to go home and, and address this. And I was just, you know, looking for maybe a, a quick fix or just try to feel better and get back to the field because I knew, you know, it's this interesting thing. I knew at one level that's where I was called to be and that's where I was meant to be. And yet there is this, these, these blocks, these things preventing that calling from coming to fruition because I hadn't addressed you know, the, these underlying issues of trauma. So that was a huge wake up call in, in many ways. And that luckily, I mean, that wasn't the end of the story, though. That was a really, really painful time. But like, when you're on the ground, when you're on the floor, there's, there's nowhere else to go, but, but up, you know, <laughs> unless you're gonna stay there. And I knew I wasn't gonna stay there. So that's really when I started to seek out therapy a few years later, spiritual direction, but I sought out good therapy and began working, began working kind of with my interior, with my interior life, psychologically, spiritually, addressing the PTSD, addressing the sense of spiritual bankruptcy, addressing feeling abandoned by God and that, that these, this dream had, had collapsed. You know, my dream of being a, a missionary, you know, a, a missionary aid worker for for a career, you know, all of that, just just that loss, really having to to process that and move through that, and it it wasn't it wasn't quick or or easy work, but you know, gratefully, I found the resources and the people that I needed, and and that came in fits and starts. Mm-hmm. I think not. You know, not everybody was. For example, I saw some therapists who definitely were not were not helpful, and oh. some modalities that that weren't helpful. But yeah, it, that was really the a crux moment, a crux moment in the journey there in in South Sudan that kind of led to everything else, really, and and, and where where I am today. Yeah, yeah, that, that's. One of the things that you shared in the book, just so many different things that really, really made me think. And, you know, as I'm thinking about that one thing, that in itself almost could be a book into itself. And from from the inside out, the book is is really a pretty big book. There are a lot of big questions to consider. It in some in in some ways, I see it running similar to a book that Gene Johnson wrote, "We Are Not the Hero," mm-hmm. right? And some some other books mm-hmm. that are really similar. If if I were to sum up what I took out of the book is that we, or at least initially, that we need to be careful about the things that we and our cultural background tell us about ourselves, about others, about what we might call the majority world or the third world, about the kingdom. And that we are to, as best we can, leave behind God's fingerprints rather than our own. What are the other big things that I've missed? No, I think that sums it up pretty well. And like you said, I definitely packed a lot into one book. Perhaps it it could have been two or three books. And perhaps, you know, maybe book book number two will (laughs) dive in, you know, deeper to any, any one of those aspects but i knew i knew i really sensed the importance of blending these disciplines mm. so i knew that to honor both my own story and the complexity of doing mission i had to integrate these many realms that i've kind of touched on yeah i think already in our, in our conversation spiritual formation psych- psychological functioning 
theology, missiology, spiritual spiritual formation. I don't know if I already said that. <laughs> but, you know, the way I look at it is like God is at the center of it all, drawing us into kind of greater health, greater integrity, more transformation in, in each mm-hmm. of these realms. And, and again, that is, I draw that from my own experience, but I also... Well, for example, I did some some research in in graduate school be, before the book was written. Okay, but I saw the same patterns over and over again. So, so research with North Americans, North American Christians who are doing some sort of service work, faith based service work overseas, whether I whether they identified as being missionaries or not. Okay, dependent, but they were you know faith oriented, faith based sojourners all over, and I saw in this research, and it was, it was qualitative, qualitative narrative-based research, that these same factors kept showing up over and over again. And oh. they clearly, we all have our own, our own stories, our, sure. our own histories, but there was always the, these, these realms. And so I really started to pay more attention to those realms because I was seeing them in myself and I was seeing them in others. I was also seeing them in the literature. I was seeing them in, in the research. Not obviously not like double blind placebo controlled <laughs> research here because we're not talking about medicine, but I, I just it, it it was really that's what I started paying attention to. So, like for example, maybe in before I was twenty nine, I started doing mission when I was twenty twenty one when I first lived overseas in South okay. Africa. So for the first eight years that I was involved in cross cultural ministry. I didn't give my own cultural background a second thought. And that's that's true of a lot of us. Even though yeah. we're cultural beings, we sort of see culture as something that's that's only out there in that it's sort of it, it's not it's not central. It's something to to look at and pay attention to. We need to learn learn how to respect the local culture of a place and all that sort of thing. But the cultural piece is really easy to overlook because it's not only out there, right? It's also in here as a lens through which we see the world. And yeah. so it's not, we're not only encountering cultural difference. Indeed, we are, we do encounter cultural difference outside of ourselves, but, but culture is also, you know, we, we have a culture, but members of the majority, you know, the dominant culture tend to view themselves as as culturally neutral, but we're, you know, we're not neutral, like white North American Christians also have a cultural background. Mm -hmm. So that, that piece was really, really big for me. And I was, yeah, I mean, I had been actively engaged, you know, in barely full-time cross-cultural ministry for almost a decade until, until I woke up, started to wake up (laughs) to that piece. But yeah, so I that that comes up like the cultural piece. We we rarely reflect on our own life story, like on our own trauma. In my case, mm-hmm. but but whether it's you know such such potent trauma from from one event or abuse or or whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. Really, we all carry wounds and pain. We all have un, unmet needs, and all of this sort of impacts how we show up somewhere and serve the marginalized. Hmm. And so I think 
as we sort of as we know our as we know our own stories, especially the the places of pain, especially the places of wounds, we're able to kind of move forward with with, with more integrity as as we address that, mm. and we're able to be more beautiful embodiments of the gospel in engaging with the marginalized. Mm. As you were sharing that, one of the things that it kind of took me back to your book. You were sharing about the research that you were doing, this qualitative research, and you began seeing patterns emerge, you know, patterns around spiritual direction, patterns around spirituality and psychology and some some other pieces like that. That reminded me, in the book, you talked about the a, a couple of different kinds of thinking. You were contrasting them, and one of them was constellation thinking. Can you share f- for us a little bit about what you mean what what it means to approach constellation thinking and how that can help change our perspectives? Mm, yeah, for for sure. So, constellational thinking. So it's essentially a metaphor based on constellations in the sky. And mm-hmm. so when we're out at night and we're gazing, we're looking up at the sky and we're trying to find Orion or or the Big Dipper or the Southern Cross if we're in mm-hmm. the hemis- southern, southern Hemisphere we sort of, we're not looking only at the stars, only at these specks of, of, of bright light in the darkness, but we're actually looking at the darkness and kind of drawing lines of connectivity between the stars, which is kind of a unique thing because we're sort of looking at this, at, at we're looking in a different way, essentially. We're kind of using a different, I would say a different quality of vision. It's not an analytical quality, or, or it could be analytical, but it's not. It's not. It's not linear. Mm. So you know, our Western minds are, are trained that you know a a is a and can never be anything else. Or trying to trying to draw another another metaphor here, but linear thinking doesn't doesn't always work because things are complex and and there are multiple factors involved in in any given issue for example so for example like with with poverty hmm. we tend to wanna if there's we're in a situation of poverty we tend to want to sort of do a fire hose approach like like a fireman would. And that would be a, a, equated to this is a solution based on linear thinking. There's a fire, we're going to get get the hose and, and put it out, right? Yeah. Which if your house is on fire, yeah, like definitely get the hose, put out the fire. But a lot of these issues that we're dealing with in cross-cultural service work and mission are, are, are complex and that level of thinking doesn't work. So if we go back to the consolation model, there are these lines of connectivity that are there, that they're there, but they're not there like with as much objectivity as we might want them to be there with. And there's sort of, there's a, how do I put it? We can't only pay attention to what's obvious. So mm-hmm. to pay attention only to the stars is to pay attention to only what's obvious and that kind of linear way of thinking. But if we pay attention as much of that dark space between the stars, we see these lines of connection that we didn't really see before. Mm. So it demands or requires like a little bit, a little bit more of subtlety, like a little bit more of 
seeing the thing behind the thing and the problem beneath the problem and not just seeing the text, but, yeah. but also the subtext. And, and it's kind of a shift in our, in our normal way of thinking. It's kind of like, it, it's, quite, it's quite different because our brains are, especially, you know, our, our minds and our Western brains are really, really good at seeing a problem and tackling it. And that's a gift. That's, mm-hmm. that's a very, very good thing. But it doesn't always, it doesn't always, it doesn't always work. So, yeah. So we can only see the nuances and some of the particularities and the, and the subtleties that do allow us to address complex problems when right. we're using this, this constellational, uh, constellational thinking. You know, as, as, a cultural American. I, I grew up in the U.S. I've been here, well, pretty much my whole life, except for a few trips here and there. One one of the big challenges for me is I see poverty, things like feed my starving children or any, any number of mm-hmm. those kinds of things. And man, I want that fire fireman approach. And mm-hmm. a few years ago, I read the book When Helping Hurts, and it really undid me. And it left me in a place where, in a lot of ways, I don't know what to do because I'm fairly insulated from the actual problems, right? I can read about them, I can hear about them, but I'm sure. I'm fairly insulated. How does how can I making me the example? How can I approach constellation thinking and a holistic approach toward making sure that whatever it is that I do not only has the best interest of somebody else in mind, but also not just has their best interest in mind, but is most likely to actually be helpful. Mm, that's a great question. And uh, When Helping Hurts is a great book. When Helping yeah. Hurts, Walking with the Poor is such great books and, and that are really helping kind of solidify this paradigm shift that, that we're in the midst of with regard to mission and, and ministry. But, you know, I would say, and, and Brian Fickard and Steve Corbett, who wrote that book, would probably give you a much different and, and better answer than <laughs> I because they're the, they're the practical guys. It's like, it's, it's I'm the I'm like the impractical mission guy in in a way. So I say that tongue in cheek, but but I almost it, it's interesting you bring up that book because I knew and I had read that book and I'd been a fan for mm-hmm. for a while. I think I read it in in twenty twenty eleven. Okay, and the, actually I see my book in a way from the inside out is a great companion guide because there those books that book per, in particular is is very practical and yet it does it does touch on touch on theology as well but Mm -hmm. it's very much this is how we can do this better and there's a lot of that out there and it's great and we need that what i saw was that there wasn't much out there around well why haven't we already started doing things differently like what are the Mm -hmm. what are the kind of the deeper undercurrents that are preventing us from from seeing differently and from engaging differently and and why do we still have ethnocentrism like what what for example what role does ethnocentrism serve or these big power differentials uh, obviously you know mm-hmm. we show up with assets and money and that's not a that's not a bad thing but when we get our ego needs met from that you know so those sort of that that deeper undercurrent so just the shift from there back to your back to your question though i think I mean, really what comes to mind is to support, first of all, discernment is important and not just giving because you feel like you have to give or doing something because you feel like you have to do, but Mm. 
discerning where really am I am I called to engage? Because not everybody is called to live overseas. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is 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 called to that standard that the usual typical missionary service. But a lot of us want to support organizations, right? So that does come to mind. Mm-hmm. I want to give financially what organizations kind of exhibit excellence in this realm and what organizations think constellationally. You know, that's that's where I go to. Who are the experts who are already doing this and who have a proven track record and who do things really, really well and then kind of get behind them because we're, we, you know, we can't, we can't do these things on our own, even when we're on the ground somewhere. Hmm. We're on the ground in Haiti or Sudan or Cambodia. We still can't, we still can't do it on our own. And we generally, we don't have to recreate or, or reinvent the wheel. But yeah, I just, I think of all the, there are many organizations that come to mind, you know, depending on if you are looking at if you felt a particular, for example, pull to, I don't know, donate to AIDS in Africa, mm. or that you, or global sex trafficking or something. There are definitely organizations that that do employ deep wisdom and, and deep intelligence that I think really, really gets close to the heart of the gospel. And there are others that that don't. And I think I think the reason why they don't, to be quite honest, is they're not aware of of some of these issues. Hmm. They're not aware of some of these deep, you know, deeper undercurrents, and they're they're a little bit maybe maybe stuck in an older in an older model. We do, and this is going a little off of your question, but I think <laughs> it's I think it's still in, important to to talk about. We come from this. I mean, missions us who, who are involved in missions, we come from a colonial history. Mm-hmm. The stream in, in the stream in which we're called to engage is historically a colonial stream. And so where there's all these obstacles and injustices that we are that we have to address and and deal with. And so like I talk about some in the book, colonialism itself isn't over. It's just gone underground and it just comes up in, in contemporary iterations. Yeah. It, you know, it pops up his head in different forms. And so what we see is that if, if there hasn't been some questioning and, and wrestling and doing some difficult doing some difficult work the the leadership of organizations miss miss quite a bit mm. but thankfully that is that is changing that is changing and it's never been changing as fast as it, as it is as it is now yeah you you touched on colonialism one thing i'd like to suggest for for those of you that are listening right now there's there's quite a bit more that we can't really get into on that today. We just don't have the time for it. I would like to encourage you to make sure that you do pick up Ryan's book. We'll make sure that we have a link in the show notes for you. Ryan, one one of the things as you're sharing this, I just I continue coming back to some of the stories you hear, right? So somebody goes somewhere and what they see are smiling children in a place that's poor and seems distressed or they see a grandmother relaxing by a hut 
what seems like the, you know, the relaxing edge of a sea or something like that, but we don't always see the reality of poverty, you know, the, the actual reality of poverty. You've seen a lot of that. Can you share with us what is, what is poverty really like in the majority world? Mm. It is not romantic. I, I remember when I had those illusions as well, especially rural poverty, rural poverty exerts this, this, this certain more of a romantic pull than, mm. than urban, urban squalor. Because okay. It's, yeah. it's, 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 excuse me, it's aesthetically pleasing and often, you know, in set in these really stunning, beautiful, beautiful places. Like I lived on the, the coast of the coast of South Africa on the, on the Indian ocean coastline. It just, yeah. Mud huts, just like you said, old women outside their huts. And, yeah. but you know, that's our sort of our Western desire for taste the exotic and to adventure. I don't know that any of those are bad. They're 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 not they're not inherently bad, but mm-hmm. it gets messy when when we blend poverty in, in, into the mix and romanticize poverty. So yeah, I think you know where I where I had with your question is poverty isn't just material. It's spiritual oh, yeah. as well as yeah. as you know. And there's also, which I talk about in the book, which comes to mind, there's a, there's a cycle, a shame poverty cycle because poverty is, is relational. Poverty is really rooted in disempowering relationships that don't work. Hmm. And so shame is always, is always close to close to poverty because people tend to really blame themselves for, for the state that they're in. Mm-hmm. And so there's helplessness, hopelessness, self-blame. And so I think part of our work as Western Western missionaries, Western aid workers, community development workers, is to th- this work of reassigning blame from the poor to a different realm again the deeper the deeper place so what underlies poverty it's these it's these systems and structures of inequality that give rise to these conditions in the first place i mean obviously yes personal responsibility is involved of course like no matter where we live whether it's in in the u.s or you know in the poorest place on earth there's always personal responsibility, but there's also a myth that there's only personal responsibility. And so if people would just get on with things or, yeah. or, or work harder, but we live in these systems, these political, social, economic, religious systems, and they tend to work for some of us and work against others, benefit some and work, mm-hmm. work against others. And they keep people really locked in these in these shame poverty cycles. So in order to address the economic aspect of poverty, we have to also address the spiritual, the, the shame part of, of poverty and kind of work toward recognizing this, how this works and then shifting, shifting, shifting some of the focus and, and, and the blame and kind of reassigning that to the, the political and social and economic systems that keep people locked in these degrading, dehumanizing 
cycles, cycles of poverty. And sometimes, you know, foreigners with the best of intentions, and I'll include myself in, in this in, in years past, I hope I'm not quite as bad anymore, but, <laughs> you know, show up and we don't understand this. And so we unwittingly can easily perpetuate this sense of shame and helplessness and then reinforce these patterns that that can that can do harm and disempower people but we don't know that we're doing it and we can come and go and 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 not know that we're doing it and i think that kind of ties back into the the constellational thinking metaphor yeah because it's not just what it appears to be i mean look a lot of us know yeah we can't show up somewhere and just and just get give handouts but it it's deeper there, there's more to it yeah of, of course i mean 90% of us would say yeah handouts are, aren't the best way and in context of of disaster relief or emergency yes of course of course food water shelter yeah. there, there needs to be that but in in context of of development and that's really usually where missionaries are going to certainly short term short term mission trip participants and that sort of thing. It isn't the emergency settings. It's not post-earthquake Haiti necessarily or post-tsunami Indonesia or something. It's it's places that have entrenched endemic poverty that has been around for for generations. And it is it's generational, it's cyclical, it's it's deep, deep seated. And showing up just trying to help usually doesn't help the the intention is good and even i would say i think quite a few of us are are literally are legitimately called called to engage hmm. with issues of poverty but i think where we where we sometimes lack is the formation piece the education piece the training piece and not that it needs to be you know going to get a a master's degree somewhere before you before you do anything I don't even don't mean that at all. Just mean looking at looking at some of these issues. Like, what is poverty really? You know, mm. like most of us think it's. And for most of my life, again, you know, we think poverty is not having enough economic resources. And it's like, well, poverty is a lot more than that. And you know what I find really interesting? The church tends to be, in terms of how culture shifts and and that sort of thing, the church tends to be on the lagging edge. They're like you know, yeah. 20, 30, 50, 80 years behind is really unique in this realm is that it's the church, it's it's the the Christian development practitioners who are actually on the leading edge because they're the ones, we're the ones who understand that poverty is relational. The more secular folks don't really, they don't grasp that that quite as well as as the as the Christian scholars do, and the, the Christian the Christians who you know have dedicated their lives to this, mm-hmm. and who teach on this, and who who research this, people like Bryant Myers and Jayakumar Christian over in India, they're really on on the on the leading edge of this, and so we are we're really pioneering. Christians are actually pioneering this kind of cultural shift, and I say cultural shift because, for example, like short term missions is is a cultural phenomenon in the United States. I think it's a, I don't know, $5 billion industry. Mm. And it's been around, you know, it's been around for decades. And it is, it's a piece of, it's a cultural piece of, of evangelicalism, for sure. And, yeah. and, and, you know, to some degree, mainline 
Protestantism and Catholicism as well. But there is a big shift going underway. And it is, it's spreading beyond just the, the Christian missionaries and development practitioners into the secular realm. So that's, that's definitely unique. Yeah. Yeah. As, as I think about your book, it's a very good book and it brings up a number of things that I continue to struggle with myself as, as I approach this. If, if I were to be really honest with myself, I think that I would probably discover that a good portion of my actions as it relates to you know, the poor or missions or any number of things like that are either guided by a, a sense of duty, not not wanting to be the one that Jesus says, hey, there, there I was and I was poor and I was hungry and you didn't take care of me, or a sense of pride, wanting to, to be able to say, hey, look at, look at what I did. How much, are, are, for, from your experience, do you see that kind of thing in the, the people that come to minister? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question and good insights. And that is, those, those, are common, those are common patterns. I think part of it is historically, and even, even now, it kind of it, old things die hard, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. missionaries, missionaries were seen as, as a cut above a mm-hmm. little bit a little bit better than the rest, you know, a pastor or, or a missionary. And that that sentiment still kind of hangs on that, yeah, those called, especially to over, overseas ser- service work, are just a little bit better, a little bit better than the rest. So I think that's part of the, the, the ego piece. And a part of that, too, is is identity. So much of this has to do with identity. I know in my own mm. life when I knew myself as a as a missionary, as an aid worker, and if I wasn't that, I was nothing. I was absolutely mm. I was absolutely nothing. So I had my whole identity wrapped up in that role, that role of of this is this is who I am. Mm. And that's a very shaky dangerous place to be because we're never what we do. We're not our vocations. Mm-hmm. We're not our callings. But certainly in our society, which is a, you know, I guess you could combine this sort of the historical narrative that missionaries are just a cut above the rest. Mm-hmm. And then sort of the cultural narrative that you need to succeed and do big things and achieve and be successful, right? So if you put those two together, there's quite a powerful storyline there to follow. And that's hard to not, uh, not so much break, but that is, it's, it's difficult to let go of that and move into more of a, a healthy posture in terms of actually, no, people who are called to serve overseas are not a cut above anybody right. else. Yeah, totally. And that, I think to, yeah, just the the desire to achieve great things for God, so to speak. That's a that's a really kind of powerful pusher of folks. Yeah. And part of it's healthy. We want our lives to matter. We we need meaning. We need purpose. We can't just go through life feeling like you know we're here for nothing. And and, and that's not what I'm suggesting either. But it's having, I think, you know, more more humility. 
this sort of this conversation, I think, is part of the reason why contemplation has been so helpful. Contemplation, mm-hmm. spiritual direction, spiritual formation. When we can sit in rest in contemplative prayer, if we, when we sit in rest just in God's presence and just allow everything, all of what comes up, all of our, you know, our fault self, which could also be called the ego, right, to just rise and to be held by God or that God holds all of us in, in this in this present moment, holds our whole being, scars, wounds or whatever is there hmm. that's it, it's it's really powerful because we start as we practice that we start to start to wake up to that we're you know we're we're not we're not what we do and our belovedness is not doesn't hinge on what we do it doesn't hinge on going off to you know wild dangerous places to to do god's work we might be called to do that, but that's it's it's can never be who we are. Mm. We're always, you know, who our identity always transcends the the things that we do. So I think that's I think that's a big a big piece of it. And then like the other side, you mentioned the, the flip side of the coin, the duty, the mm-hmm. duty piece. I to be honest, I see that less. Then I see the other side of the coin, and maybe it's just that I haven't, I don't know, it, it huh. could be some just chance-based. But what I do see quite a bit is people who are really burned out and oh. who are ready to maybe go home or maybe kind of not turn in the towel in a negative way, but but they feel that they have to keep going. They have to keep going. They have to keep going. Hmm. And that it can be really hard to, you know, learn how to take care of yourself. For example, self care is difficult. I think it's difficult for everybody alive. Hey, I know I've never met a person. <laughs> <laughs> yes, likewise. Yeah, yeah, and it it it's a challenge. All of this is 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 really challenging. Yeah, yeah. So so we just have a couple minutes left in the in the time, and I'm wondering. If if there's somebody who's a missionary or an aid worker listening right now, and they th- they're thinking, yeah, maybe I've got a book in me. What what would you share with them? Hmm. Yeah, I would just say, be honest. Hmm. Be as raw and honest and as vulnerable as you can. I think that's what we that's what we need to hear. That's what people need to hear. We don't we don't need another book about I, I, who, who, who knows what, but what we do need is people's just real raw honesty mm. and, and their, their story, our stories overlap. And despite, you know, we each, we each have our own story. We can find each other and we can find ourselves in each other's stories. And pain is the most universal thing and so when we talk about the particularities of our struggles of of our mistakes of our failings what we've gotten wrong it's also in in this paradoxical way the most universal thing so what mm. is most particular is is most universal and that's really i think what people need we see ourselves reflected in in each other 
But yeah, I don't think we need any more. We don't need, you know, the hero narrative. We don't need, you know, the seven steps to being the world's <laughs> best missionary. We don't, we don't need any of that, you know. We need stories about, about failure. We need stories mm. about how, what we did with our pain, how, how you sat with your own pain, how you came out the other side, how you found new hope when when all was lost. It's at this point that we did get cut off before we got to say the normal goodbyes and also before we had an opportunity for Ryan to let you know what you could pray about. I would like to encourage you to take a minute to pray for Ryan and his family. They're relatively recently in a new country. And so I'd like to encourage you to pray for them as you might pray for any other missionary who's in a new situation. All of the transition, all of the things that are going on, family life, all of that kind of stuff. I'd encourage you to pray for them. And then also pick up his book, From the Inside Out. We'll have a link for you in the show notes, which are at engagingmissions.com slash Ryan Kuja. That's engagingmissions.com slash R-Y-A-N-K-U-J-A. Engagingmissions.com slash Ryan Kuja. I found this to be a really good read. I think it impacted me and I think it's going to impact you as well and be a valuable read for you also. Make sure that you come back in a couple of weeks. We're going to be talking with a church planter about how he got started, how God has surprised them, and then also the role of obedience. And I think this is going to be a really good discussion. I think you're really going to enjoy this. If you haven't already subscribed, make sure that you do. You can go to engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. That's the best way to make sure that you don't miss this because it'll be automatically delivered to your favorite podcast app. Just go to engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. Choose the way that you would like to receive it, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or any of the other ways that you can subscribe to a show, and then it'll be delivered to you automatically. And also, if you found this to be valuable, especially if you found our conversation with Ryan to be valuable, I'd encourage you to take a minute to think about somebody who might benefit from this and share that with them specifically. It's great to share it on social media, and believe me, I appreciate that. But even more meaningful is if there's somebody who's going through something similar and you think that God might use this conversation with Ryan, I'd encourage you to share it with that person or with those people specifically because you might be the person that God uses to create a connection, to deepen a relationship, or to provide some kind of resource that allows somebody to continue going when they might be thinking about quitting. If you remember from our conversation a couple of weeks ago, missionary attrition missionaries leaving the field is kind of a big deal. And we want to make sure that the people that are out there doing this have the resources so that they can keep going on and that the rest of us who are senders have the resources that we need so that we can provide really good support. I would encourage you to share that with that person specifically. Thanks again so much for being here. And also my thanks to Jeff and Gabby for the work that they do to make this show possible. Believe me, I appreciate them and I appreciate you. Thanks so much. I'll connect with you in a couple of weeks.